everybody to Between the Lines, the podcast from Jewish Quest. My name is Simon Eder and each week I'm joined by a special guest who helps us to deconstruct that week's parasha, exploring new insights and meaning in the Torah. And it is wonderful to have with us today Rabbi Daniel Zucker, who's the rabbi of Temple HaTikva and also President and CEO of Americans for Democracy in the Middle East. Rabbi Zucker holds an MA in Hebrew Letters and is a Doctor of Divinity from JTS and received his rabbinic ordination from HUCJIR. And a sampling of many of Rabbi Zucker's articles may be found on his fantastic blog, and also through the Torah.com, which is where I first encountered some of Rabbi Zucker's writings. And it's wonderful that you're joining us today to explore Ve'et Hanan. My pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. I'm very flattered to be in such an august company. Wonderful that you're here. And obviously, actually, in fact, over the next couple of weeks, we'll be exploring interpretations of Shema, and of course the first paragraph we encounter in this week's parasha. How have interpretations of the Shema changed? We have to remember that we're talking about a text that is at least 2,500 years old, 2,600 years old, assuming that this is a part of the book of Deuteronomy that was discovered in the temple in the Josianic reforms and came into existence at that time. The understanding of what the Shema means has obviously changed because conditions have changed radically many times over in the 2,600 years since the text was written. What brought me to examine this particular text in this way was actually something that I learned from my Bible professor, the late Professor Stanley Gewurz at Hebrean College in Los Angeles back in 1976, when he pointed out the passage that we recited at the end of the Elena on a daily basis, what did that really mean? And he indicated that, and that's the first time I had encountered it, despite studies of Mesopotamian literature earlier in, in my college career, that in Mesopotamia there was this idea of deities having a numeric value, a numeric epithet, and that Echad was the most important deity. So it's numer- what we would say today, numero uno. And that the text of Zechariah 14.9, Bayomahu Yeshem Echad, he will be number one, and his name will be, and he will be understood, everyone will know, number one means we're talking about Hashem. We have to remember that the time period, that the world was still very polytheistic, and it's even questionable how pure the monotheism was at that point. I, I'm not convinced that with the Josianic reforms and that the ideas that really begin with 1st Isaiah, 
that the idea of Hashem being unique, that that was completely accepted throughout Israel. Certainly, there's much evidence to the contrary. And even after the exile, and we're talking about Zechariah in the 6th century, early post-exilic, I have questions about how monotheistic the general thinking was. I know from my own experience, actually <clears throat> having studied in yeshiva for some time and then started an academic an academic study of bible as well as various other things and encountering henethe the concept of henotheism for the first time and i remember that was that was extremely traumatic at the time for me but but perhaps we might address just the interpretation the multiple interpretations that the opening line can really lend itself to give the syntax used. I think in, in, in continuing on with your first question a little bit, we have to realize that not only the Shema, but that really all of Torah, the interpretations and the background assumptions of the prevailing society has had a tremendous influence. Keep in mind, we are today very much influenced by the Rambam and his concept of a totally non-corporal deity. But as great a rabbi as Rabbi Akiva, some 11 centuries, 10, 10 and a half centuries before the Rambam, in the Shi'ur Koma, is estimating the, the size of the deity. So we've got to realize that, that our approach to what the text means and the concept of Hashem has radically changed over over the centuries, the millennia. Now, if you want to go to your second question a little bit more, I'll be happy. Yes, yes. the importance of the syntax. It's, again, understanding that the Torah, in other places, makes clear the idea, the Deuteronomic idea, that Hashem is unique. Hashem is the only deity. But... The whole background of, and all of the critical scholarship, whether we're talking about uh, Weinfeld or uh, Tegay, indicate that the text is a little bit strange. Hero Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. What does one really mean? Is the only deity, the, is a unity? Based on what Professor Gewurz had taught us about the verse from Zechariah. I then went and looked at the verse, because the text is the same, in Deuteronomy. And then looked at his article. He's a mathematician, actually, at Rutgers. And he was studying the sexagenary system of ancient Mesopotamia. And then beginning to look, starting with his article, and then looking at Assyrian materials, to understand that in different cultures, the idea of the uniqueness of a deity might not be, as we understand it today, unique being single, one, no comparisons, but unique amongst primary individual, prim primary example among many. And uh, again, in studying the Assyrian text and Assyrian critical commentaries, it came, I think it's Papalola, that suggests that the Assyrian 
aristocracy bordered on monotheistic thought, seeing their principal deity, Ashur, as the only deity, but that the concept from earlier periods of multiplicity of deities, that these were aspects. And for that matter, if you examine carefully modern Hinduism and you talk to a learned Hindu priest, Krishna takes the same position and all the other deities are aspects. And if it all seems still very strange, let's think for a moment of, and I'm reminded of my philosophy professor, the late Amos Funkenstein, saying we should never denigrate Christianity for being Trinitarian because we've got the spherot, 10 aspects of, of Hashem, uh, the Shekhinah being the lowest uh, level of that. So it's the concept of monotheism is a little bit amorphous till we really get to to Maimonides. And then we have all of the difficulties of what was said at Sinai, what was revealed. And even the famous Midrash from Chot 28b of Moshe Rabbeinu sitting in Akiba's academy and being totally lost. Till finally, Akiba mentions, oh, that's a halakha from Moshe de Sinai. And then Moshe is satisfied he hasn't been forgotten, and he signals to Hashem he can go back again, back to heaven. But in, in the process, we're seeing the rabbis of the Talmud saying, things have changed. Things, things are constantly in change, and therefore we have to re-examine and re-understand. That's why, to a certain extent, Maimonides takes up the same question and presents it from his philosophical concerns. At other points, there's an eschatonic type of approach. So nothing stays the same. Famous, I've forgotten my Greek, I apologize, but the famous statement, you can never step into the same river twice. The, uh, the understanding of text continues to change, and we bring our modern focus as well. My interest in writing the article was to try to understand what was the intention of the writers at the time it was written. So going back to that and maybe stepping into a very different Hebrew environment to Rabbi Akiva's, but to the Deuteronomists in Josiah's court of the 7th century, what was the intention behind their codification, do you see? Okay, we have to remember what was going on at that point. That was still part of the period where, uh, after Hezekiah succeeded in saving Jerusalem, but it was at a price. He had to pay a huge ransom, a tribute to, indeed, they did not ransack the temple, they did not ransack Jerusalem. For political reasons, Sanharib had to return home. It was a rebellion, but it wasn't quite the miraculous thing that Isaiah would and second team would, would indicate to us. It was a little more complicated. But the net result was that from that point on, Judea, till, till 605, Judea was under Assyrian control. And in the period, uh, the rule of Manasseh, his long rule, 
it was really the height of Assyrian control, where had to swear loyalty to not only the emperor and the crown prince, but also to accept and declare publicly that Ashur was the head of the pantheon. With that in mind, it may have been, and this is what I'm suggesting, that the Deuteronomic priests who help write the text did not like this and figured what is a way to get past the the Assyrian censors, as it were. And they would have been familiar with the Assyrian concept, the, the general Mesopotamians concept of deities being given numbers. And just as, as Marduk was understood to be the head of the Babylonian and Enlil, the Sumerian, uh, and Ashur of the Assyrian pantheon, and ascribed with the number one as, as his epithet, the in effect meaning the only one, so could, with on the basis of syncretism, and the Assyrians were into syncretism, Hashem could be ascribed in such a manner way too, so that the Assyrians would say, oh, the, oh those Judeans, they are indeed being loyal, they're paying the tribute, and they accept, they just call Ashur by a different name, but they're accepting it. Whereas the understanding within would have been, they think that's what we mean, but we mean Hashem and not Ashur. But by using the term Echad, it's almost a code word to get past the censors and to be accepted. Once the Assyrian Empire fell apart, then this whole understanding of what Echad meant at that point fell away. And as slowly monotheism became more the norm, it certainly wasn't the, the cultural norm in the greater area. All the other peoples were polytheists. but it became more common throughout Judea, and there was a more homogenous population. So the background of this fooling the Assyrians could fall away, and what we think of Echad, meaning one and only, became the understood interpretation. With all the other interpretations that we presented, the philosophical, others as well, of course, at different times. Maybe now then, perhaps drawing on your rabbinic hat today, as well as the important historical lens that you draw on, how do we then teach these words to our children truthfully? I have always, I've taught religious school, including from fifth grade on up through 12th grade, and I do cameo appearances with the younger ones as well. When I'm asked, Rabbi, did this really happen? Did the sea really split? Was the Torah revealed as it says at Mount Sinai? I've always replied, that is what the Torah says. And I've never had any youngster come back to me and say, but what, what really happened? That always has been a good enough answer. We have to continue, in my mind, the traditional approach of one means one. God is a unity. There is no other deity. Uh, God is invisible, has no body. The Maimonidean understanding in a simplified form. 
when we get college-age students, postgraduates, when we get adult education, that's a whole nother ball game. I would never teach this critical type of a material and critical approach to pre-B'nai Mitzvah, even pre-high school students. When we get to adult education, then we present more details and indicate as hopefully they are beginning to understand themselves, life is a little bit more complicated than it was when we were in grammar school. That's my approach. Rabbi Zucker, thank you so much for exploring these words so familiar to us that we'll have repeated innumerable times, but for presenting them in such an important way and drawing on important historical context that will no doubt give us much to contemplate for a long time to come. So thank you so much for joining and we very much look forward to welcoming you back. Thank you so much. It's really been a pleasure. I hope I was relatively coherent. Absolutely. If you enjoyed this podcast, please remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And of course, do find out all about our exciting content on our mothership, jewishquest.org. And we do look forward very much to meeting again next week, where we shall be exploring some more on the second paragraph of the Shema. Thank you. Thank you. It's been a pleasure.